0: as we look at david to see the the real king david to see his intricate inner workings his ups and downs and his his uh, deep uh, complexities in his personality it, it, the, honestly it's to see a man that's not going to fit on a sunday school felt board how many remember those those uh, sunday school felt boards where, you know and I, w- I was always excited because at sunday at the end of the lesson when i was a kid they'd let us take those home and i i would take you know the apostle Peter home and stick him on stuff all the way around the house, you know, and, and, uh, and, but David doesn't fit in that. He doesn't fit in that, that picture. And when you look at everything he's done, how can David be called a man after God's own heart? I mean, he had blood up to his elbows. He had killed thousands of people, not all of them in combat. He had once brought devastation upon the nation. He was not good at marriage. He was, he was even worse at being a parent uh, and he had committed adultery and murder, but somehow, here at the end of his life, he still this this complicated life. He still remained. Uh, he's called a man after God's own heart because through it all, through all of his problems, through all of his sins, through all of the, the mistakes he made, he still had a fixation on God. And, and David David uh, never lied to God or to himself or to his nation about who he was. He He confessed in prayer and on paper and in public that he was just a mixed bag. David was not perfect, and he wanted that remembered for all time. Instead, the God he served was perfect, and that's what David wanted to know. He published that every opportunity he got was that that, that I'm not perfect, but my God is. And and so he, he, he said, you know, when I was unfaithful to God, he was faithful to me. He said, when I, when I couldn't raise my own kids right, he was a perfect father to me. Uh, and, and the Lord has steadfastly remained a shield and a refuge for me, and my heart remains fixed on him. And in David's final years, the the, the sword was retired, and his, his, uh, as it is the way of humanity, his bold strides became the slow and cautious steps of the elderly. And he seldom strolled on his rooftop in the evenings anymore. Instead, he spent his late night hours with his transition team and transcri- transcribers documenting the final words and wishes of Israel's greatest king. The mixed legacy of David would not continue to, or excuse me, would continue to impact lives throughout history by pointing others, not toward his complicated 70 years, but toward the God who anointed him a king as a child. And 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 1, that chapter begins with these words. These are the last words of David. Now, when we hear that today, we think, okay, you know, somebody's last statement on 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 their deathbed. But that's not what it means there. It doesn't mean that they're the final words he spoke before he took his last breath. What it means is that David... Recognized the fact that he is nearing the end of his life. He knows knows that the end is coming, and, and and he called to his side a historian, and he and he wanted to to compose a summation of his reign. It was sort of the his final memoir of the king, determined for every, so that everybody could know the truth. And knowing David and knowing his love for God and his musical ability, it's no surprise that he really begins the summation with a song it says these are the last words of David David the son of Jesse speaks David the man who was raised up so high David the man who anoint, who was anointed by the God of Jacob David the sweet psalmist of Israel and he says this the spirit of the Lord speaks through me his words are upon my tongue the God of Israel spoke the rock of Israel said to me the one who rules righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is like the light of morning at sunrise, like a morning without clouds, like the gleaning of the sun on new grass grass after rain. It is not my family God, excuse me, is it not my family God has chosen? Yes, He has made an everlasting covenant with me. His agreement is arranged and guaranteed in every detail. He will ensure my safety and success, but the godless are like thorns to be thrown away for they tear the hand that touches them. One must use iron tools to chop them down. They will be totally consumed by fire. Interesting thing about this is David, you know, looks back and he at everything that that he had accomplished for Israel during his reign. Despite all of that, David even here he refused to steal God's glory for himself. He, he for David all of this, everything that happened, had all been about God, which which we see in his words. Verse 1 and 2, he said... David, the man who was raised up so high. He didn't say David, the man who climbed his way to the top. He said, somebody took me and raised me up. It wasn't me that did it. He said, uh, the, the, the man who was raised up so high. David, the man anointed by the God of Jacob. Again, saying, I didn't do this. This is what God did. He said, the spirit of the Lord speaks through me. His words are upon my tongue. David, in spite of all of his accomplishments, he looks at everything and he says, all the things that are, that are, that are victories, all the wonderful things that have been accomplished in my, in my reign, during my reign, all of them belong to God. It was God... who who killed the lion, he said. It was God who killed the bear. It was God who killed the giant. It was God who kept David safe all those years on the run from Saul. It was God who strengthened and expanded Israel beyond everyone's imagination as the young nation all but annihilated the the once overpowering Philistines. And in in this final summation, David was more than clear. He said, the glory for all of, of Israel's success was to be given to God, not to me. King James Version translates verse 5 as this. It says, Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made me an everlasting covenant. In other words, even though my house is not with God as it ought to be, God has never broken his covenant with me. You know, plain and simple, as we have learned in the last few weeks, David did a better job leading his country than he did of leading his own household and he didn't deny that in in 2nd Samuel 7 even as God forbade David to build him a temple the Lord established a covenant with David he said your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time and your throne will be secure forever and after this covenant was established David then he began to damage his earthly uh, family that God had given him through his adultery of Bathsheba through his Refusal to discipline Amnon through his uh, uh, refusal to deal with with, uh, Absalom and the rebellion that came from there. But regardless of David's failures, God uh, remained true to his covenant with David. David the psalmist lifted up the Lord's unfailing faithfulness even from his deathbed. And only after giving glory to God, because he starts there and says, all of this was accomplished by God's hand. It's not me that did it. But then after he did that, what David did next is is really powerful as well because he began lifting up his loyal soldiers. These are the the things David said. This is what I want to be remembered about my kingdom, about my reign as the king of Israel. He said, first of all, remember that it was God who did this. I don't deserve the the credit. God deserves the credit. And then he begins to talk about the soldiers. It, it, it It was... them you know that that he began to say you know these are the men that that stuck with me they were the ones that were in the in the caves with me as we were hiding from Saul these are the ones that have been loyal to me over the years he he kind of steps back steps back and says and says look at this team my team is incredible who could who could fail with people like this around him knowing he was running out of time to do so David felt compelled to make sure he shared the glory uh, with his team, none of whom had, had, or excuse me, some of whom had been with him since the, the caves of Adullam. And, and, and David made a list of 37 men, half, half uh, uh, excuse me, hall of famers whose loyalty to David had, had uh, impacted his life and left a mark on history. He began rem- reminiscing about some of the great soldiers, his, his mighty men, men like Jashobim, Eleazar, and Shema, who were also known as the three. I love that. How'd you like to have that kind of a name? You know, I mean, they were, they were the elite circle, the top of David's mightiest men. You know, they were the three. And and, and David didn't want to miss an opportunity to mention some of their greatest feats in battle, including a time when one of them killed 800 enemy warriors in a single battle with just a spear. That's who I want on my side. You know what I'm saying? He next shared exploits of Abishai and Benaiah, who had killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day. His age and his hard life catching up to him, David was eager to get these stories recorded. These these, uh, great men were part of his story, and, and David wanted to make sure that they were not forgotten. He didn't want them to be footnotes somewhere in history. He wanted them to be remembered. At some point during the storytelling session with a historian it's possible you know i picture in my mind maybe david being uh, getting older and a little more tired and maybe he began to ask others for help simply to just to jot down the names of all the rest of his mighty men and he he he, he uh, wished that he could share stories about all of them but at least he wanted to make sure their names were, were recorded and uh, so that so that here we are three thousand years later people would know david cons- who david considered his most faithful men and we can, we can just imagine a scene when, in which one of his staff members comes to David's bedside and says, your majesty, we've got the list ready. We have 36 men uh, uh, here on the list right now. 36 incredible soldiers whom we think you, you, you want listed for their commitment to you and to their commitment to Israel. Picture the feeble king, you know, lifting up his head from the pillow and just stretching out his hand to get the list and He says, let me see the list. I I want to make sure we're not forgetting someone. As he reads the list of names, he begins to smile as he remembers their faithfulness and their, their mighty deeds. And David says, yes, these are the greatest men I ever worked with. What a team. What a team. May their names be remembered forever. And David scans the list one more time. He kind of looks up somberly and said, there's one name missing. Everyone around him kind of just drops their, their, their gaze and look at the top of their sandals because they know exactly whose name is missing. And finally, somebody works up the nerve to respond. He says, Your Majesty, we don't, we don't have to, 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 to include him. We don't have to list him. We really don't. Let's not remind everyone of, the, of that part of your life. It was just a minor blemish, blemish on an otherwise beautiful canvas. So let's not even list him. Immediately David says to them, no, he must be added to the list. I was disloyal to him, but he was loyal to me. He never sinned against me, but I sinned against him. And his name, add his name to the list, and you add it right now. And don't even think of hiding it in the middle of the names. Put his name at the end where nobody can miss it. And verse 39 lists the 37. And the final loyal man, David, wanted to make sure the world would never forget. Uriah the Hittite. For all of his wickedness, for all of his sins, for all of his complicated life, David was never a man to hide from reality. Uriah the Hittite, the the steadfast soldier who refused to sleep with his wife while his comrades were sleeping in the mud. The husband of Bathsheba the woman with whom David committed adultery. The same, the same Uriah the Hittite was one of David's mightiest men. And Just the name alone was a sober reminder of that dark, scandalous time in the, in the godly king's life. David had repented. Everyone had moved on. And Bathsheba's son uh, Solomon was, was even in line to be the next king. I, I mean, really, who would have even... Uh, blame David for leaving U- Uriah's name off the list. I mean, it was so long ago and, and, and he's already paid the price. Everything is, is okay, but, but, but David refused to leave him off. David made sure his name was on the list. And this is David at his best. This is the complexity of King David. David did not want his sins hidden. In the pages of history. Especially if it meant hiding the loyalty of others. Or masking the grace of God. He said if I hide my sin. Then nobody will know what a great man Uriah was. Number one. He said and if I hide my sin. Nobody can begin to understand how great God's grace is. That that I've been forgiven of it. That's why you know, you know, I, I know everybody here everybody here has a past. Right? I, I, I hope you do. I hope you didn't just like materialize when you walked in. It's like, ooh, where'd you come from? I didn't I don't know. No from nowhere. We all have a past. And everybody in this room, you've got things that you're not proud of. Am I right? I don't even have to ask that. I know that's true. But the beauty about the grace of God is that even though we don't look back on those things, you know, we're, we're, we're not proud of those things and we remember them and there's, you know, we're, we're not happy that we did them, but we're not afraid to talk about them. Not in a way, you know, how many of you don't know, met somebody that starts giving testimony about their past life and it seems like they're making it sound like, man, that was the best time of their life. And then I got saved and now I don't do anything, you know, but, uh, <laughs> But not that way, not to glorify past sins, but to say that's who I was. And now look at me. You know, when I was a kid growing up, um, you may or not, you may be surprised, maybe not. But when I was growing up as a kid, I had the worst temper of anybody you could possibly meet. I mean, I would explode in a rage. I remember literally chasing my friends around the house with a two-by-four in my hand that I was going to smash them over the head with, and I say, thank God he made me slow. (laughs) And I've told people about the temper I used to have, and I've had people say, I just can't even picture you like that. And I say, that's the grace of God. That's who I was. That's not who I am. That's how I used to act. That's not who he's made me now. I'm not who I was. Those things are real, but they serve as a way to to show a contrast to say, this is what God can do in a person's life. To turn them around and make them a completely different person. And David was not about to let the grace of God be shadowed by hiding it. And even at the end of his life, David's heart remained focused on God. He refused to lie about who he was. He said, I'm a mixed bag. I admit it. I messed up in ways that I would never have imagined I would have done. He said, "I I can't even raise my own household correctly. I couldn't even keep myself from murdering one of my best friends. And he said, and I want all of that written down. I want it remembered that though I was not loyal to Uriah, he was loyal to me. I want it remembered that though I was unfaithful to God, he remained faithful to me through all of it. And at the end of the life of the greatest king of Israel's history with all the triumphant notches on his belt of victories and all of the accomplishments, David just simply said, this is what he said by doing this. He said, who God is is more important than who I am. Who God is is more important than other people's opinions of me. He said, let all my sins be known. Because I want to make sure that God's grace is never forgotten. You know, one of the things we learn from David as he talks about all of these mighty men that fought alongside of him. The lesson that we can learn, one lesson we can learn from that is that a, a wise leader knows that he cannot win his battles alone. He can't. David's entire life was anointed by the supernatural power of God. I mean, from learning to play the lyre alone out in the wilderness to listening for the wind in the top of the mulberry trees before attacking the Philistines, the hand of God led David every step of the way and guided him from victory to victory. 2 Samuel 22 is, is David's reflection on all the incredible God work that God chose to do through him. He said, in your your strength, I can crush an army. With my God, I can scale a wall. He said, you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued my enemies under my feet. You placed my foot on their necks. He said, you gave me victory over my accusers. You preserved me as the ruler over nations. People I didn't even know now serve me. And throughout the, the, the psalm and throughout all of his life, David's David's theme was God, 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 not me, me, me. David was clear about what was his and what belonged to God's. And he made it clear. He said, all my sins are mine. But all my victories are God's. All of the mistakes and the failures, they're mine. I own them. But all the grace, all the forgiveness, all the victories... All of the accomplishments, they belong to God. David never denied what was his and and neither should we. In Isaiah 42, 8, God said this. He said, I am the Lord. That is my name. The next line he says, I will not give my glory to anyone else. David got that. He said, listen, this is not about me. And can I tell you, you know, when if we become too full of ourselves, this is what Saul learned. If we become too full of ourselves, God can raise up a shepherd boy to take our place and to fulfill His plan anyway. And, and you know, when we talk about uh, the the team that God had, that that David had around him, that God gave him, you know, I was talking about how wise leaders recognize those those people around them, but. But I also want to take it from the other side of it to help you understand that, that leaders need people around them. You, and, 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 and some of you are called to be leaders. Everybody's a leader in some degree. Because leadership in its essence is influence. And so you influence somebody. You're leading somebody, whether that's a small child or, or, the, or, or you're leading a large group of people. Everybody is, is, is an influencer in some way or another but, but you know whether you 're called to that level or not, the truth is uh, you, you know every leader i 'll put it in our context as your pastor. I need the people of God coming around me. I need the people of God linking arms and saying and saying we 're in the battle with you we 're going to be we 're going to be do, carrying out the work of God with you we 're not just saying okay we 're paying you, so you do the work now Pastor dave, because if that if that, if that happens. David would never have gotten where he was without a team around him, and we'll never get to where God wants us to be if it's all up to Pastor Dave. I mean, can everybody understand that? I mean, we can see that, right? And so I just, I just challenge you know, uh, sometimes, and it's not just me as your pastor, but Pastor Jason and Pastor Meredith, and you got, you got board members, and you've got Sunday school teachers, and you've got. Uh, other ministry leaders and people are involved in different ways and, and you know what, sometimes what they need is for you to come all up to them, come alongside of them and be able to say to them, listen, I believe in you and I, I want to encourage you and I want you to know I'm standing by your side and, and you're not alone in the fight and we're, we're fighting with you and we're going to move forward and, and I believe God's going to do great things through, through you and through us together. That's what, the, that's what they need from you. Well, the great Israelite king of 40 years who had brought down giants and vanquished nations made sure that he listed the names of the soldiers who helped him. And it was David whom those soldiers loved, to whom they were loyal, and of whom they were in awe. But David said, it wasn't me. Not in the least, he said, first of all, it was God who gave the victory after victory. And he said, secondly, these men who devoted themselves to me in ways that I never could have dared to even ask, even when it meant sleeping in caves and hiding from Saul. He said, if not for them, I would have spent the rest of my life like a hermit living in the caves of Adullam. Well, in a sense, as I've said before, you may remember me saying this, David's childhood was, was taken away from him. Because when he was just a shepherd... Uh, too young to even join the army, God used him to turn the tide of, of the war against the Philistines and, and made him into a national celebrity. How many of you have ever ever seen or read the stories of, of famous child stars and what happened in their lives later on? you know, uh, their, their childhood. So many of them, you find out their childhood was completely lost and, and they had all of this fame and all this going on when they were so young and it destroyed them. And, and David didn't, didn't suffer the, he wasn't obviously destroyed by that, but, but he lost his childhood. He didn't, he wasn't a little, he wasn't considered a child anymore. This is the giant killer. And while David was hiding in the wilderness, God used the desert time to build David's army and to weaken Israel's enemies. And, at the end of his life, this high-impact leader could not even die in peace. Because while, while David was uh, lying uh, on his deathbed, probably, I mean, even on the heels of this, where he, he transcribes this great uh, uh, piece, his last words, while he's lying there, there's a, uh, a devious plot churning to frustrate David's will and to hijack his inheritance. And in the face of this plot, how many of you ever heard the phrase politics make strange bedfellows? You ever heard that phrase? Boy, it is so true. Because here we have a a long embittered ally would finally show his true colors. A power hungry general would turn out to be loyal only to himself. And a prophet would make sure that the son of an adulteress became the next king. The treacherous treacherous political intrigue swirled around David in his final days and he, here he is he's an old man he's so old that in fact he he's uh, uh has a hard time even keeping warm yeah, yeah have you ever been around somebody you know when you get up in years and they just have a hard time keeping warm I remember when I was in Fredonia Kansas we would uh deliver these uh meals on wheels and we would we would deliver them I'd walk into into it'd be it'd be you know 90 degrees outside some days and we walk into somebody's house and I take them the step through the door and it's like they got their furnace on at 80 or 85 and he's like, whoa, <laughs> you know? But they were just cold. They just wanted to stay warm. David was in that place. David had been king for almost 40 years, 33 of them over all of Israel. Now, I want you to put that in perspective. In today's terms, that would be like 10, four, uh, 10 four-year U.S. presidential terms and even if every one of those presidents had two terms in office, that's at least five presidents. OK, so you go back 20 years or 40 years, I should say, that'd be like if Jimmy Carter was still president. You know, that'd be a long time. <laughs> and I'm not even going to say what's really coming to my mind, but that'd be a long time. Well, for four decades. David had been Israel's principal military leader, political leader, and religious leader. Now he wasn't a priest, but he was really heavily involved in the religious culture. I mean, they were singing his songs at worship. He was the one that brought the, brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, so he was involved in that and. And everywhere people, I mean, remember Jerusalem, the whole city, the capital, the only reason it's the capital is because David uh, captured it from the Jebusites and turned it into the capital of Israel. And everywhere the people go, you know, they look around the capital, every place they look, they're reminded of David. I mean, for 40 years, he had been their leader in every way. In in a very real sense, Israel was David and David was Israel. And now in his 70th year, David and all of Israel knew that the future of the nation without David's leadership had to be dealt with because it was coming. David, you know, he was never given to denial, faced his poor health and and, and age with characteristic honesty. And, you know, because he was uh, so old and his servants found a young girl named Abishag to lie next to the king to keep his chilled bones warm. Now, don't read anything sexual into that that wasn 't what it was; he was an old man who, who couldn 't stay warm, and the blankets couldn 't do it, so they, they found a, a young person to lie in the bed with him so that, to share the body heat and warm him up. That was all it was so feeble stricken with bad circulation and, and nearing death, the the king was confined to bed while nefarious plots surfaced among those who were not dreading his death, but eagerly awaiting. Uh, and Israel without David. And one of the most complicated and dangerous times in the life of, of a church is is when the pastor resigns or the pastor dies. You know, there's always someone in some position of influence that has, you know, has some sort of gripe against the pastor. They didn't like something that was going on. And so when that happens, very often Someone will take the opportunity to step in and try to get their way. Have you ever seen that happen in a transition time? And a church that has had solid, you know, even a church that has had solid pastoral leadership for twenty years can blow up in, 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 in just during that transition because sometimes what happens, egos get larger than a heart for ministry. And at that moment of leadership transition, bad character, perhaps hidden for years, can surface with devastating results. And this is what happened with David. At David's impending death, David's son, Adonijah, whose mother was Hagath. By the way, Adonijah was Absalom's next younger brother. And Adonijah decided on his own, he decided, you know what, king's about to go. Absalom would have been the king. He's gone now, so I think I should be king. The scriptures say that Adonijah provided himself with chariots and charioteers and recruited 50 men to run in front of him. Now, for those that have been here for some of the lessons, does that sound familiar? Who does that sound like? It sounds just like his older brother, Absalom. Absalom. There was another son of David who who, uh, was aspiring to take the throne. He got chariots and horses and soldiers and galloped through the city as though he was already king. It was Absalom. And here he is years later, despite the fact that it did not turn out so well for the vain Absalom. Here he is doing the very same thing. He tried the same tactic. Apparently, he learned nothing from his elder brother's disastrous attempt to become king. Um. You know, this just, somebody said wisdom is the ability to learn from other people's mistakes. (laughs) How many of you uh, wish that there are some lessons that you would have learned by watching other people instead of having to go through it yourself? Anybody experience that? Yeah. Well, Adonijah, you know, surely he had heard the story of Absalom's body hanging from a tree limb by his hair, with a fist full of arrows through his heart, surely he knew what had happened, yet the lesson was lost on Adonijah. Now David, it also seems that he didn't learn anything. Remember what got him here? With Absalom? Was he, when Amnon raped uh, uh, David's, uh, his half-sister Tamar, who was David's daughter, when he r- raped her, David did nothing. The other Bible does say he got very angry. Oh, I'm so mad. But that's all he did. He didn't deal with it. And he learned very little from those previous mistakes. You know, years before he had failed to discipline Amnon, and then he never dealt properly with Absalom's murder of his brother, and he never brought Adonijah to heal. This is what it says in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 6. It says, now his father, speaking of Adonijah, now his father, King David, had never disciplined him at any time, even by asking, "Why are you doing that?" He had not still had not learned, had he? In other words, David spoiled Adonijah. You know, you you hear people say, uh, I, "I've heard him say about babies." He'll say, "Well, you can't. You're going to spoil that baby. You give him too much attention." No, that's not how you spoil a child. Not by loving them too much, because if you really love them you 'll discipline the way you spoil a child is letting them do whatever they want there 's a big difference. David did that, and israel 's great king, he ran the entire country with supernatural wisdom and with with amazing strategy, but he couldn 't manage his own sons you know it 's fascinating to read about the bizarre coalition of forces. Uh, described in 1 Kings chapter 7. It says, Adonijah took Joab, son of Zeruiah, and Abiathar, the priest, in his, into his confidence, and they agreed to help him become king. So, all right, now, since he had, he had taken a page right out of Absalom's playbook and, and tried to present himself as king, he, he obviously thought well of his big brother, because he thought, well, he did it, I'm going to do it the way he did it. So here's the question. Why would he seek an alliance with Joab when Joab is the man who killed his brother Absalom? The answer is very simple. It's because he cannot claim the throne if he does not have military power. And Joab is the general in charge of the army. He would rather team up with the with the person who killed his brother than do without power. All right, and that leads to another question. Why would Joab go along with this plot? After all these years... You know, Joab was David's nephew, and he had devoted his life to protecting David. He had devoted his life to leading his armies, to disposing of anyone who stood in their way. Now, why, at the end of David's life, would Joab switch alliances from a legendary king to an ambitious and devious lightweight? You know what? Once again, it's about power. You know what? Just on a side note. I have never seen a church issue, a church problem that did not boil down to power. Who's going to be in control? I don't care what the issue is, color of the carpet, whatever it is. It's really, you know, very rarely is a church fight about what the church fight is about. You know what I'm saying? It's usually about who gets to call the shots. So it's not about the color, you know, where where you got you got Sister Farkle over here, you know, with a she's gotten her, she gets her word from the Lord, the Lord she stands up, the Lord thus saith the Lord, red, red for the blood of Jesus, and then you know, then you know Joe Schmo over here realizes that Sister Farkle got a head start, and he said, no, I had a dream last night, purple for the royalty of Jesus. It's not about the color of the carpet; it's about who gets to make that choice. Right. Well, that's what it is with Joab. See, Joab, first of all, King David dies. What's going to happen to him? What's the next king going to do? He's been David's right-hand man this whole time. Yeah, the new king might kill him. He might, be, he might lose his power. He knew that if he helped make Adonijah the next king... That because he was so inexperienced that that new young ruler was, would have no choice but to keep Joab on as the, in char, being in charge of the military. In fact, Joab would become more p- powerful than ever. He would not only have the army in the palm of his hand, but he, he would have the king there as well. In fact, it's very possible that he may have been thinking beyond that, thinking, if I can get him in office once David's gone, I can take over. You know, we don't know that. I'm just saying that. But but ultimately, it was about power. It, 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 he would, he would, it was just too much temptation for a man who had spent his whole life playing second fiddle to a legend. So you've got Adonijah, you, you've got Joab. And in, in addition to those two, you have uh, Adonijah also enlisted the help of Abiathar, the priest. Now, The name of Abiathar may not ring a bell immediately, but we talked about him several weeks ago, a long time ago. And uh, if you don't remember who he is, you'll remember here in just a second. Because fleeing from Saul, you remember David, uh, he went to the city of Nob, uh, a city of priests, and he asked for some bread, and then they also also gave him Goliath's sword. You remember that story? And he lied to them, and he, he said... He said, I'm on a secret mission from the king. Uh, And he said, I need food and I need a weapon. They gave it to him and and then David left. When Saul heard that that the leader of that village, uh, Elimelech, who happened to be the father of Abiathar, when he heard that he had helped David... He did not believe what Ahimelech had told him told him the story and he had the entire city slaughtered and the only person to escape the slaughter was Abiathar the priest and he ran to David knowing that was the only place he could go and he spent the rest of his life by the side of David as his priest but deep in his heart. Abiathar harbored resentment toward David for his father's death because in his mind, if David had not gone to Nob and lied about being on a secret mission for the king, then Ahimelech and the rest of the priests of Nob would never have been killed. Now the fault rested with Saul. But in Abiathar's mind, David's tied to this. And so Abiathar waited, bided his time, and then in David's dying days... He exacted his re- revenge. So you have Adonijah, the arrogant and vain prince, which which uh, being the younger uh, brother of Absalom, remember how Absalom, the Bible says he was very handsome? Well, it says the same thing about Adonijah. He was just a very handsome man. And then you have Joab, the ruthless general who killed Absalom, and, and Abi- Abiathar, the son of a priest that Saul had killed more than 40 years earlier. And these were the unholy confederates who, who had joined forces, forces to lead one final rebellion. Now, they didn't expect any opposition. David couldn't even get out of bed. So this was going to be, in their mind, a bloodless coup. We're going to be able to take this. Joab's like, I got this worked out. Adonijah, don't worry about it. We're not, going to have, we're not even going to have a fight on our hands. And their plan was to hold a dinner party. See, they're just like us. If you're going to do something, you eat, right? So um, they're going to, they said, we're going to have a dinner party. And they made sure they didn't invite anybody else who might oppose them, especially Solomon, David's son by Bathsheba, or anybody that would support Solomon. David had promised Bathsheba to make Solomon his successor, and that made Solomon Adonijah's worst enemy. This thinking would be the secret, excuse me, the thinking behind the secret plan was based on this, a simple idea. How many of you have heard the phrase, possession is nine-tenths of the law? You ever heard that phrase? Well, they're thinking to themselves, listen, if we can just get to this point where he's anointed king and he sits on the throne, it's going to be really hard for anybody else to be able to take it from him. So uh, with everyone gathered together, except those who might be loyal to Solomon, David's top general, Joab, their plan was that he would anoint Adonijah, the new king. Now he's the most powerful military guy. So he says, this is the new king. All right, so you're going to have that. That's going to be a lot of respect there. And then he said that he would lead him to the palace to, to assume the throne. So when you've got the number one military leader in the nation saying, Here, be Israel, behold our new king. And, we, and I escort him and I put him on the throne. This is an easy way to take the throne. You know, as I said, politics makes strange bedfellows. But God can also forge some interesting alliances. Because to counterattack this uh, axis of evil, if if we could, God brought together an an equally unlikely team of allies. Now, as I said, David's choice to succeed him on the throne had already been made in private. Solomon, the son of Bathsheba. Yet this decision had not been made public. And when Nathan the prophet got wind of Adonijah's dinner party, he knew he had to act fast and he knew who he needed. He went right to Bathsheba. Now I want you to realize this is a moment of high drama. We have no no indication that they have been together again since that day because roughly roughly 30 years before, Nathan had walked into the palace. He had publicly denounced David and Bathsheba's sin of adultery and he had announced that the judgment for their sin would be the death of their newborn baby. It's very possible that to Bathsheba, Nathan was the prophet who shamed her publicly and took away her child, and it's possible that she thought to herself, I hope I never see him again. And now 30 years later, the elderly Bathsheba assumed that her other son Solomon would soon be the next king as David had promised, and Nathan shows up. The last time Nathan showed up, things didn't go very well for Bathsheba. So I imagine, I just can imagine her horror when Nathan comes to see her once again and her heart just must have stopped upon learning the prophet had come again and he had a word from God, but he said, My lady, uh, he just dispensed with all, all of the pleasantries. He said, A plan is afoot to anoint Adonijah, the next king. That plot is underway at this very moment. Now, whatever had entered in Bathsheba's mind at that moment uh, when he heard, when she heard that the prophet Nathan was there, all of that was now gone, and she was thinking about one thing. But the king, the king promised the throne to Solomon, and Adonijah knows that. And she says, listen, if Adonijah knows that, if he's anointed king, then my son Solomon and myself, we will be dead before the sun rises. Nathan says, that's true, we can't let that happen. We need to go convince David right now to announce his choices of Solomon as, as Israel's next king. Now, the, I want you to understand this is a little bit of a scary thing because you're going to a king and saying, hey, how about you step down from the throne today? He may be lying in a bed, but he's, a, he, you know, he's, a, he's been a king for 40 years and now you're, saying, you're coming to him and saying, hey, I think it's time, David. So this is, this is a, a potentially dangerous situation. So they make a plan, join forces and they and they uh, and they make a plan and they say, "Okay, here's what we'll do. Oh, by the way, you know, we're talking about Solomon becoming king. You know, I've heard some people say, hear the story and they say something. It sure does not seem like the kind of a thing that God would do you know, after an adulterous affair and a baby died as a result of that sin and then to make the next child of David with Bathsheba, the king of Israel. But you know what? To me, it seems exactly the kind of thing that a God of, <clears throat> excuse me, that a God of grace would do. I mean, he, he's the perfect disciplinarian. He knows exactly when to chasten you and he knows exactly when to pick you up in his arms and love on you. He knows exactly that, and it seems exactly like God to deal with our sin and then to completely forget it and to move forward with his plan for his glory. So it seems like this is exactly what God would do, and it brings hope to me that, that in spite of anything that's gone in the past, God still can put me where he wants me to be. So anyway, Nathan and Bathsheba, they carefully formed their plan to convince the king to, to appoint Solomon to the throne. And they decided first Bathsheba is going to go to David's bedside and remind him of his promise concerning Solomon and tell him about Adonijah's plot. And then they said, after you're doing that, then Nathan, the prophet, I'll come in shortly afterward and I'll confirm everything that you've said. I mean, they, they knew that, uh, that they couldn't both just storm into the bedchambers without with this disturbing conspiracy theory it might it might upset David he might get confused he's an elder in the end we don't know how he'd respond so instead they thought we'll just layer the story one at a time hoping David would understand how urgent it is right now so she she the time came Bathsheba enters into the king's bedchambers she she walks up she says to her weak ailing husband she says your majesty You promised me that our our son Solomon would be Israel's next king. And yet your son Adonijah has gathered Joab, Abiathar, and many others for a party to anoint him as your successor. What can be done about this? Because if Adonijah becomes king, Solomon will be in the grave instead of being on the throne. And before David can even respond to Bathsheba's uh, alarming news, Nathan arrives as planned and he confirms to the king what Bathsheba has just said. He said, he said sir, there, are you aware that Adonijah at this very moment is hosting a party with Joab, Abiathar, and many others, telling them that he is the next king? Is this of your doing? Is this what, is this what you choose? And Bathsheba then adds, what, whatever... Adonijah is planning, only works, King David, if you do nothing. All of Israel is watching you. Their eyes are on you. Who will be the next king? What will you do? In 1 Kings 1, 29, 30, David declared to Bathsheba, As surely as the Lord lives who has rescued me from every danger your son Solomon will be the next king and will sit on my throne this very day just as I vowed to you before the Lord the God of Israel so to the great relief of his wife who had spent roughly 30 years knowing that everywhere she went people were whispering behind her back about her adultery David he, he moved his plan forward because at this point in time is Solomon's going to be the king someday Solomon's going to be the king's king someday. Now David says, today's the day. Today's the day. Adonijah's not going to get this. He thought to himself, I can't get out of this bed. I can't take him on militarily. I'm too old and feeble for that. But there's something I can do right now. And and David knew that the announcement of Solomon as his successor, it it had to make a big splash. I mean, a huge splash. It had to be a real spectacle that would show Adonijah's secret dinner party for what it really was. So with the mother of the future king and the prophet Nathan in his bedside, David sends for Zadok the priest and for Benaiah, his most trusted advisor. And when everybody was all gathered together, the king explains his plan. He said, take Solomon and my officials down to Gihon Springs. And he said, Solomon is to ride my own mule, my personal mule. He said, there, Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet are to anoint him king over Israel. And he said, when that happens, I want you to blow the ram's horn and I want you to shout, Long live King Solomon! And then you escort him straight back here and he will sit on my throne. And he will succeed me as king, for I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. Well, you know what? David knew what Joab knew. Anything Joab knew, he probably learned from David. David knew possession was nine-tenths of the law. He knew that with, that with Solomon riding on the king's mule... And then a shout from from the priest announcing Solomon as king with a prophet overseeing all of that, that Israel would immediately recognize and honor the anointing of their new king. So while Adonijah and Joab and and, and, uh, Abiathar were at their dinner party, the new king was anointed at the spring of Gihon. Interestingly enough, that location is close enough to the dinner party for the attendees to hear the trumpets being, being blown. So when the trumpets sound, everybody knows something's going on. What's going on? Questions begin to rise and confusion begin to, to reign in that party. And then the answer burst in as somebody comes running in from the street. Solomon has just been made king of Israel. And Adonijah knew the gig was up. We're, we're going to get to next week about what happened. what's that? So it's like commercial. <laughs> but we're going to close with this. I want to go back to the story of Nathan. When he had to go to talk to Bathsheba. We have to learn to trust in God's will even when even when the spirit is leading in ways that you find completely bizarre. You know, Nathan, I mean, imagine a conversation between Nathan and a friend that he might have had before leaving for the palace the day of Solomon's anointing. You know, he says to a friend, I've got to go help Bathsheba put her son Solomon on the throne. Friend says, uh, uh, you mean the ex-wife of Uriah the Hittite, you know, who slept with the king while her husband was at war and then got pregnant and then married David after a convenient death of her husband, then had that baby who, uh, that died shortly after the you humiliated her and made their scandal public? You mean that Bathsheba? Yep, that's the one. I mean, it must have been hard for Nathan to hear all of this from God. Surely it was. Wasn't he human? Why would he want to get tangled up in all of that mess again after all, all these years? And it's as simple. He'd heard from God. That was it. And for Nathan, it was just as simple as that. Being a, a pure spirit, being a man who loved God, who served him wholly, he knew that he, what he had to do despite any risk that it involved. And when we look at the story of Nathan, I want to remind you God's logic is not our logic. Scripture says that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are beyond our comprehension. And he is not bothered by how the world perceives his acts. One of these days I'm going to tell you this story about Jack Hayford when he was on a plane. And the Holy Spirit told him to speak in tongues to the person next to him. That's a great story, but I don't have time to tell it tonight. Another time. It's, it's awesome. The, 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 the Holy Spirit, just you know, he has a long resume of leading God's people in unusual ways to accomplish his will. And that list is, is getting longer. I mean, think about it. You, you know, the, the children of Israel, when they were delivered from Egypt... And Moses finally got, you know, after the, the firstborn was killed, and they're finally going to be leaving Egypt and heading to the promised land. And, and Moses begins to lead the children of Israel out. But you remember how, how they were led? Anybody remember? By day it was a pillar of cloud. By night it was a pillar of fire. Very good, very good. A little refresher there. But here's what's interesting. If you look at the map, from where they would have been they should have taken off on a, uh, almost a due easterly course to cross uh, the river up where it's easier to cross and to, and to get into the promised land. It would have been a much shorter course. But you know, you know what God did instead? He, he was leading them. Instead of them taking them on the most direct route, the route that would make the most sense, He took them south. Israel is not south of Egypt. And by taking them south, he got them to a place where there was, in their, in their eyes, they were, had no hope whatsoever. They got stuck between the Red Sea and the most powerful army on the earth. They were stuck there. And that was exactly where God took them. In the human eyes, we look at that and say, that makes no sense whatsoever. But God was doing it for a purpose because he was taking them in a a direction that made no sense, humanly speaking, because he wanted to show them before they got out in the wilderness who he really was and what he was really capable of. He wanted them to know that when you leave Egypt, you don't have to worry about that army anymore because I'm going to wipe them out in, in an instant. God had a plan, but it wasn't clear to the humans that were involved. So for us, we have to learn to trust in God's leading. Trust in His Word to you. You know, don't don't concern yourself with trifles of things like safety or opinions of others. When When you hear God speak when you know He's leading you, when He's taking you in a direction like the Israelites that doesn't make any sense whatsoever, you know, whatever He says to you, do it. You know, at worst, at at the very worst, you could be wrong and feel foolish. Right? I mean, that's the worst that could happen. You know, you go up to somebody, God i believe god laid something in my heart i want to say this to you that makes no sense to me whatever and you walk away from oh i missed god on that one that's the worst thing that could happen but even in that scenario i know god is pleased with a heart that says lord i'm willing to i'm willing to be obedient how many how many of you have ever had a child that was willing to be obedient and then did it the wrong way Has that ever happened yeah, you, you you didn't you didn't like you know jack them up because they did wrong, right? You're like, oh, I'm so glad you tried, but next time let's do it this way. You know, so even in that scenario, it's a good thing. But but most of the time, you're going to be right on because. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. And you're going to understand, you're going to know the nudgings of God and you're going to sense his his direction. And, And so in that moment, when he says to you something to do, when he speaks to your heart, then do it, do it, and then leave the rest in his hands. That's what we learn. That's what God wants for us to learn how to do. Easy said, easily said, not always easily done but you know what the more you do it the easier it gets and the more you do it the bigger things he asks you to do because you've proven your obedience in the small things let's pray together i thank you lord jesus for.